Welcome to STEM Interviews, a science communication interview series powered by stemcognito.org, a not-for-profit platform showcasing the best in STEM research for free. STEM Interviews is hosted by ex-researcher turned professional science communicator Dr. Sarah Wettstadt. Each episode, Sarah chats to a scientist, technologist, engineer or mathematician about their research and why it's important for both scientists and non-scientists. She also asks about their science communication tactics, hobbies, career journeys and pretty much everything in between. Welcome to a new STEM interview. Today we have Dr. Manasi Apte from the University of Tennessee at Knoxville in the US. And she wants to talk about her postdoc research project with us. And welcome, Manasi. Thank you, happy to be here. Yes, so do you just want to start by summarizing your research project, what have you been working on and what is, what is so amazing about it? So yeah, I mean, I can definitely go into my uh, postdoctoral research work, but I ju just want to set up the background. So I'm originally from India. I did my bachelor's and master's training from India, and then I moved to the United States for my grad school, where I did PhD from Wayne State University in Michigan. And then I moved to my first postdoc uh, at the NIH as a re postdoctoral research fellow. I was working at National Cancer Institute, which is one of the 27 research institutes that come under the umbrella of NIH. Um, and I was working with yeast cells. I was working with yeast cells for National Cancer Institute. Like, mm -hmm. how am I going to cure cancer by studying yeast? And that's the question that many people ask me. So I want to explain a little bit for them. Um, in STEM fields, many a times when the research project is designed, uh, we don't really necessarily get a chance to actually work with the patients for, um, let's say, ethical considerations or some sort of um, private, personal, financial considerations. And over the time, the science community or biology community have come up with very clever ways of studying the same things using some sort of a proxy organisms or proxy animal models or microorganisms. So yeah. yeast is one of that because, and this is possible because yeast and humans share a lot of uh, DNA sequence, which is this string of genomic information really passed by your parents to you. And in my study, we focused on understanding these specialized yeast cells that have sort of come up with this novel means of living, surviving without the presence of a very important factor otherwise. And this is again relevant to cancer biology because mm -hmm. this is the component which generally attaches itself along with bunch of different machineries at the end of your DNA strings and protects the DNA ends from getting shortened, smaller, and uh, protects you uh, or your each cell from losing any genetic information. Oh, wow. Uh, that sounds very important, huh? It is Not very to lose important. any genetic information? Absolutely. And these, this is called telomerase. It's an enzyme or a protein that acts with a bunch of different components at the end of your DNA strings to really capture 
you know, when we keep on aging, part of the reason we age is because the levels of this protein keeps on decreasing. And then the efficiency at which it can protect the DNA keeps on decreasing as well. So the DNA length gets shorter and shorter. And that's what we call aging in one term. Okay. Now, in so cancer, we lose DNA, so thus we lose genetic information when we age. Yes, okay. absolutely. And we and, have an enzyme that protects our DNA from this from happening. Yes. Okay. Um, gotcha. And if you think about cancer cells, they don't really, you know, care about aging. Actually, their advantage is that they grow much faster than your normal cells, yeah. and they sort of dominate over your. Uh, normal cell population. And that's why you see this tumor, which is like a big mass of unwanted cancerous cells, right? Yeah. And how do they get that growth advantage? Many cancers, this enzyme telomerase or reverse transcriptase in very technical jargony term. Mm -hmm. And that's why they can keep on continuing to divide their these cancer cells where normal cells are actually going to keep getting shorter and shorter. Yeah. Um, so that is sort of giving them growth advantage. So of course, we humans have to combat cancer. So many of the anti-cancer therapies are targeted towards how to take out this overproduction of this telomerase. Yeah. Enzyme. Makes sense. But again, cancer cells are clever. So mm -hmm. they have to come up with Another brilliant strategy to overcome this barrier, they have to resist our attempts to cure cancer. So they become resistant to our chemotherapies, right? Yeah, they yes. do. And there are also a set of cancer cells which don't really rely on this overproduction strategy. They mm -hmm. actually serve independent ways and People have been studying those cancers for a long time. And that's partly because they are most aggressive ones. You don't have any cure because even if you put the anti-cancer agents that are already in the field at these cancers, nothing is going to happen because they don't rely on those pathways, don't rely on these processes. So these cells that don't respond to normal cancer therapy are called alternative, they, they are called alt cancer cells or alternative lengthening of telomere cancers. Okay. Now telomerase, the protein that I mentioned before, actually binds to this DNA end, which is called telomere. And yeah. in these cells, we work with similar type of population of yeasts uh, that also use alternative approaches of keeping their telomeres long and so it's sort of like we are studying yeast cells as a model for alt cancer cells okay but now yeah so wait you have those cancer cells that you can't study so instead you go into the yeast because they have the same mechanical setup as our cancer, as cancer i mean cells. you're partially true people have been studying actual cancer cells as well yeah this yeast cell that i'm going to explain to you was sort of like a a novel discovery in itself mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. before our lab found this type of specialized yeast population, nobody in the world knew that these kind of yeast cells could even survive. So in 2010, my postdoctoral research lab published a nature paper uh, actually describing the discovery of this specialized population for the first time. Wow. People probably have seen those type of populations before, but 
but they couldn't thought that it was an artifact, some artificial thing that is happening in their experiment. So they didn't really study them. Uh, and these specialized cells, what we call them, uh, they're called hati cells. And okay. hati in Hindi means uh, a big mammal, our favorite mammal, elephant. Okay. <laughs> and we call them these cells heart T cells for two reasons. One is because they are giant as our big mammal elephant as okay. compared to normal cells. Okay. And they also seem to have a great memory, just like, you know, great memory of elephants. Cells it's have memories. Remember, yeah, what is this? Remember how they have survived from one uh, generation to next generation and so on they seem to remember that they don't have the capacity of doing this overproduction of telomerase. Okay. <clears throat> but they have to rely on the staining their DNA ends. And they keep on doing that very faithfully without any errors every generation, every passing generation. Wow. So we think that they have absolutely amazing uh, qualities for us to study them in yeast. Uh, partly because yeast is so easy to grow and you know it's so easy to do experiments with i don't think i would have done the experiments in six years with human cancer cells yes. as it would have been in yeast cells so okay. <laughs> that's why i mean i i, I feel like um, model organisms don't really get that much respect in biology but they should because most of our fundamental knowledge comes from studying these model yeah. organisms and not really the actual systems in which people yeah. have been studying the problems. Yeah. So that, I mean, that's sort of like a long route of telling me why I'm working, why I was working in National Cancer Institute, but stem day. <laughs> but yeah, let me come back to hearty cells and what uh, yeah. I did in my postdoctoral work. So. When I joined the lab, we already knew the existence of hearty cells and we knew that they are surviving by this alternative mechanism. We knew how okay. to consistently, you know, every time somebody does the experiment, we will get the same results. We will be able to produce this hearty population. And the, the way we do this experiment is that we take out yeast cells capacity of producing the telomerase enzyme completely. Okay. So Take so out. you engineer the yeast so it can age actually? Yes. It doesn't absolutely. stop aging, it can age. Okay. Yeah. Yes. So, but we don't give it uh, an opportunity to use telomerase at all. So we delete out the sequence or we take out the DNA sequence that actually encodes for the protein telomerase. Ah, yeah. Still function. They will age over time and there yeah. will be a time in their you know, life cycle where they have lost that end piece completely, end sequence completely, yeah. telomeres completely. And at that point, the cell has to decide. So they have to survive. The most proficient strategy in our laboratory conditions, how we have managed them to grow all this while, is by allowing themselves to grow by this alternative means. Yeah. And what this alternative mean involves is a very common biological process. So we were very surprised to know that, you know, these ends that they, these cells have, they don't look like any normal DNA ends. They actually mm -hmm. have a ribosomal DNA, the DNA that actually gives rise to a protein making machinery in your cells. Okay. That's, so normally, that's just mind blowing out. Okay. Yeah. So like normally you have this repetition 
repetitive seeking of DNA letters that appears mm-hmm. on the ends of all your chromosomes. Yeah. And the sequence is always repetitive. Exact sequence differs from species to species. So humans have different species level yeah. numeric sequence. Yeast has a specific sequence. But what we observed was in these hearty cells, when they lose complete telomeres and actually survive by hearty methods, mm-hmm. uh, they now replace that telomeric DNA with ribosomal DNA. So okay. all their chromosome ends now have ribosomal DNA. They actually okay. have six times more ribosomal DNA sequence than the wild type cell or okay. a normal cell. So what does it mean? It's going to produce more ribosomes then instead? They, they will. And that's probably they why they could, they could get that growth advantage. Yeah. But more importantly, what these ribosomal DNA sequences are doing are actually protecting the end sequence of, this, of the remaining chromosome the the okay. placement of our dna sequence ribosomal dna sequence is then aided by a, a machinery of end protection okay okay so let me let me just get this straight yeah. so the cells lose the telomerase sequence so it's not protected anymore instead it puts up a different sequence for ribosomal dna right but it doesn't actually produce ribosome so just For our, can you just explain our audience what ribosomes are? What do they do? So these are sort of protein factories where the protein synthesis happens. That's where different types of proteins are going to be produced in our cell. Yeah. That they will go on to do different functions. One of them would be uh, acting as an enzyme to you know cut out things in the DNA, or one of some of them would be adding like transferring some molecules from one part of the cell to other parts. So these are all essential functions. Ribosomes yeah. are just the, the place where they will do yeah. that. So right? it's the factory where everything happens inside the cell. Okay. Yes. So now our cells then produce more ribosomes as well? Uh, we don't think so because most of this, that's what I was saying, like yeah. the, the role of this newly placed ribosome, ribosomal DNA sequence is actually to protect the ends of the DNA yeah. and not really to produce more ribosomes per se. Okay. And the way they can regulate that function is by changing the environment in which this DNA is wrapped around. So uh, normally our cells have two types of environments, one where uh, it's more open and accessible to different types of machineries to get entrained mm-hmm. and do, you know, allow Uh, downstream processes where uh, those processes can involve in your or making two copies of your DNA or making proteins per mm-hmm. se. But then there are parts of your DNA sequence which are guarded from getting duplicated or for, from getting entry to any of these protein machineries. Mm-hmm. And this is done by setting up, you know, uh, an environment of different again, uh, different protein-driven molecules going and binding to the DNA, how the DNA is wrapped around, again, <laughs> around different protein molecules yeah. and interacting with different nucleic acids and setting up this sort of a dark environment like where nobody can get entry into or a closed environment where nobody can get entry into. And this environment in biological term is called heterochromatin. Okay. Uh, and so heterochromatin is what is maintaining the ends of the DNA too. So 
normal Tilo are not allowed to go through this open environment. They are always this closed environment. So when the RDNA sequence replaces the telomeric sequence, okay, that is also guarded or protected by this heterochromatic closed environment. Yeah. So um, that is one thing. But now that also raises a question. So does that mean all these six times more RDNA copies that we have, all of them are going to be heterochromatic? And the answer is yes. Oh, they wow. were. Yeah, so we found that these were actually heterochromatin amplification. That is what is called. So you have more than what the normal cell would be. A lot okay. more heterochromatin in your cell. Um, but so, at the same time, this is protecting the ends of DNA. That is the main purpose. Of exactly. Purpose. Yeah. So yeah, it could basically basically be any sequence of DNA added, added to the to the DNA just to have something at the end, and there's no loose ends. Is that more or less how I understand? So interesting that you ask, you say that because it cannot be any sequence. No. So far, we have only seen the capacity for two types of repetitive sequences okay. to do the job. And most predominantly, it's the RDNA sequence that can okay. do it. And that also comes, uh, that also brings us back to the main question I was interested in, like, how do these RDNAs get to the ends? And why is it only yeah. RDNA? Can it be any sequence? Yeah. Uh, and the short answer to that is, we now know more details about how this process happens. And, mm -hmm. and this happens by a process called recombination. It's uh, in normal terms, what you, I can explain uh, the recombination process is just think about swapping things with mm -hmm. a different type of DNA. DNA sequence action can occur by different ways. Uh, sometimes it re relies on uh, adjoining region of the DNA, which is very similar between spot A and spot B. Yeah. So then those similar regions get together yeah. and then they help swapping reaction. Sometimes there is literally no similarity between those two spots. And mm -hmm. that's exactly what is happening in our case in heart T cells. The telomeric sequence and the RDNA sequence do not share any similarity when it comes to their sequences. Okay. Neither is the, there is any similarity in the adjoining regions, but wow. still for every time this happens, uh, we see that all these six chromosome ends are now decorated with RDNA sequence. Yes. So, so that something else must basically find some RNA, uh, ribosomal right. DNA and put it to the DNA. Yeah, I mean, we thought of it as, as a stepwise, you know, this can't be, uh, this is so rare, right? This is very complex to find two random sequences and then swapping it out every time precisely, you know, in yeah. that limited time that the cell has to divide and finish this process. So maybe it is a stepwise process. This rare thing only happens once. Mm -hmm. so maybe, you know, what happens is, by uh, what we call illegitimate recombination, not based on any similarities uh, between the sequences that are getting swapped out. That's why it's called illegitimate. Um, mm -hmm. uh, the first fair thing happens where, you know, one of the RDNA sequence, so normally the RDNA sequences are located on a different chromosomal ends mm -hmm. and the telomeres are of course on all chromosome ends, yeah. right? Yeah. Now, once you lose the telomeres, the first step what cell probably does 
is two lock, which is at the right next to the telomere actually yeah. on one of the chromosomes or DNA strings, pass it to one end. Now in these yeast cells that I'm studying, there are six chromosome ends. There are only three chromosomes to study. Okay. So that also is a very important point. Humans have 23 chromosomes yes. and two copies of each. So yeah. if I were to do this recombination process and study this, I have to keep track of 46, 46. copies, right? Yeah. In yeast, it's very simple. Haploid yeast cell, one copy of each chromosome, just okay. three, Sorry. three okay. chromosomes. So yeah. I can only so, I just track six ends. That so makes my life Studying yeast as a model organism a lot more efficient. Even, even yeah, even following 46 strings of DNA, you just follow That's three. Right. Okay, yeah. yes. And um, again, the similarity lies in the fact that even in the human cell, sequences are also located next to the telomeres, mm -hmm. just like yeast. So what we think is the first step happens by, you know, it's a rare uh, thing to happen, but it just happens by illegitimate recombination. And from then, it's not really a recombination. It's more of a copy paste, you know. Okay. So because now we have our DNA sequence at the end already, yeah. then the then it's more about what is called uh, simple break-induced replication. So okay. uh, this is a process by which many of the damages that are done in the cell by many different reasons get repaired. Mm -hmm. So let's say your cells are continuously exposed to UV or some chemicals, harsh environment, and they are going to affect the integrity of your DNA strands. And that generally results into your double-stranded DNA <clears throat> molecule. And the cell has um, come up with a strategy to repair it. Mm -hmm. uh, there are a number of ways the cells can repair. And one of the strategy that the cell uses is uh, just repairing the break and making sure that the gap is filled properly yeah. by application process that follows or duplication process that follows. Okay. So what we think is happening is once the uh, first sort of swapping reaction happens and RDNA goes from one chromosome end to the other chromosome end and establishes sort of itself as this end protection, new yeah. end protection, then it does, gets very easily copied to other chromosome ends by this okay. BIR or break induced replication process. Now, the details of how break induced replication process happens is still unknown. Okay. So that's going to be your next project. So we are a project ended. I worked on the first step. Yeah, somebody is actually working on it right now. Okay. So okay. I'm hoping we'll know the answers to that. Okay. But cool thing about this all is uh, we I found in my research two novel factors uh, that were never implicated in uh, such a recombination process before. These factors are known forever. One mm -hmm. is a, 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 again a chromatin environment sensing and modulation sort of protein complex. Okay. Okay. And it's called INO80 complex or inositol sensing complex. Okay. It's widely studied. Like any yes. biology textbook will have a mention of INO80. And in a biology terms, it's called a chromatin remodeler. So it actually allows um, the cells to sense where the DNA 
and how the between different parts of the DNA are perfect mm -hmm. and it allows for different types of DNA repairs. You name the process and I know it is implicated. Okay. Wow. But nobody knew how, you know, how it can play a role in, you know, recombination process like yeah. this. And we actually found that <clears throat> when you don't have I know 80 in the cell. So if we take out genes encoding the I know 80 complex machinery, hearty cells cannot survive. Okay. So they need this perfect environment. It needs, yeah. yeah. The other uh, important observation that was made prior to my uh, study, but I also worked on it a bit further to understand mm -hmm. is this machinery called RNAi or RNA interference machinery. Mm -hmm. This is normally in all the eukaryotic cells and okay. this is process by which many of the unwanted wanted uh, um, the RNA products that are formed from the DNA products mm -hmm. get silenced. This is also again a, a major regulatory process. Yeah. But we showed that if you delete or if you take out the DNA sequence encoding any of the components of RNAi complex, mm -hmm. again, hearty cells cannot survive. Okay. And it's not like 20% of them survive or 20% of them don't survive. It's zero or hundred. Right. Wow. It, it's Amazing. none or hundred. It's absolute. Okay. And in, it's in case of both. It's not like one or the other. You yes. have to both to do it. Okay. So now does this mean for cancer to at some point treat cancer, we just have to inhibit these factors, these proteins, or is it it's, more I think, than that? It's, I think, a premature uh, statement for me to make. Okay. We still have in human settings, if we were to, you know, uh, take these observations and mm -hmm. extend them to alt cancer cells, but it definitely gives us more understanding about yeah. how possibly the alt environment is maintained in the alt cancer cells. Yeah. Now I know AT and RNAi pathway, both are functional in human scenarios as well. So it's great to see that the the processes that are happening in yeast are parallelly and universally present in the cancer settings as well. Mm -hmm. So we can definitely extend these observations, but it's far premature for me to predict that, you know, just by targeting some of these components, we are going to cure cancer. I think okay. it's a multi-pronged approach that will always be the uh, uh, more, you know, practical approach for these cancers. Again, cancer as a as a whole never. These are most aggressive cancers of all. Um, it's never just one thing, and yeah. you take care of that one thing, and you get cured. It's multiple things it's at multiple complex. levels, and you have to take care of all of them together to cure. So, uh -huh. but yeah, I mean, it's been great time actually discovering this. Okay. Uh, uh, I never knew going in that I was going to find something very exciting. I actually found that I know AT is doing this role in hearty survival. Um, in probably in my third year of my postdoc and wow. super excited. And yeah. like, um, I quickly realized that the experiments, even though I'm doing them in yeast, they are not as fast as other yeast experiments go because every uh, experiment that I described of identifying the role of any protein in 
in this heart disease. And for yeast biologists, it's a long experiment. Normally, yeah. the yeast experiments are like two days. So, okay. <laughs> um, a long time, so yeah. It, it so you really have to be patient in your field, huh? Very, very. Okay. So I feel like, I mean, what Hati project has given me is like immense understanding of uh, working with a very simple organism, but doing complex biology yeah. at a very, very patient pace. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's I, I, beyond just like scientific uh, contribution to the Sounds field. Sounds like it, yes. Publication, it's <laughs> that that I think I'll I'll take it forward. Nice. So I'm 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 actually really excited about this paper because it just got accepted in. Nice, um, congratulations. Thank you. So uh, hopefully it'll be in print by next month. So we'll see. Yay. Perfect. More about it and more uh, in detail. Awesome. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> awesome. So this has been a very, very brief summary of your project. Awesome. So one can tell yeah, from your, I don't from know your summary that you have some experience in communicating your science, your research to a broader audience and you definitely like talking about it, which is amazing. Um, so yeah, I definitely just... like to talk, that's for sure. <laughs> no, that's, that's good. <laughs> Uh, let us maybe just touch on that because you've been quite active in the science communication world as well. So how is it to, so first of all, what kind of projects are you working on? And then maybe second, like, how do you do both? Like being a scientist, being like in the lab, like probably 50, 60 hours per week, plus doing some psychom on the, on your free time. How does all of that work? Uh, so let me start I hope you sleep. Yes, I do sleep. I love sleeping. So I, I would never trade anything for my sleep. I okay, that's that's a good start. I like to hear that. Sleep. More about, yeah, no, I think it's more about balancing mm -hmm. and time management. Um, I have been doing science communication uh, on the periphery more, um, more so than, you know, completely actively involved since my undergraduate days, actually. Mm -hmm. um, I've always been involved in different initiatives around communicating science, maybe, you know, just like poster presentations, doing leadership roles in science conferences, outreach activities at that point, or science education activities where you nice. go out and mentor students. Um, I continued that with my grad school experience as well, because I knew somewhere, you know, um, at the back of my mind that I wanted to explore more opportunities. I wanted to be part of, you know, different communities that I have been exposed to. That is what I, it sort of keeps me driven, so to say, to balance out, you know, uh, I would always take permissions from my advisors before doing any of these uh, so-called peripheral or extra. Yeah additional uh, psychom things but i would say i've seen i have done most consistent psychom work for last seven or eight years wow. and that's partly because i was a postdoc at the nih mm -hmm. nih as a place gave me lots of opportunities to do lots of different types of communications education engagement work and um, NIH's postdoctoral office is great place for anybody who's listening to this interview. Exactly. I, I mean, I, I could 
then I could folks who do those kind of activities and workshops and actually keep on giving us postdocs chances and opportunities to, you know, uh, enhance our resumes, actually, to do all these things along with your research. That's just increasing your worth and your, you know, overall personality at such. So uh, I very early on in my postdoc, I made a conscious decision of being very frank with my postdoc advisor and saying that, hey, I am going to be involved in all these initiatives and it will take some time out of the lab, but I'll make sure that I'll, I'll, I won't slack on the experiments. And for, I was very fortunate uh, about that too. Like, oh, even from, even from my undergrad days, all my mentors have been super helpful, super supportive. That is good. Yeah. And, I will, unfortunately was not in the same position. I really had to, yeah, kind of I keep really, it secret all my science communication project that I was working on because my supervisor, she did not appreciate me doing this. So yeah, that is very lucky. I really hope that more and more PIs think of uh, all these uh, activities as the integral part of our training and not really you know, something that is wasting our time, sort of, mm -hmm. so to say, or we are doing this on their dime. Exactly. as how some PIs like to think. Uh, and again, National Cancer Institute is a great place in terms of uh, giving the postdocs opportunity to uh, work on these aspects of your personalities. Again, uh, we are made uh, to keep up with our individual career plans or development plans every year. And I was fortunate to work with the, the, the director uh, for last five years of my postdoc where he was very, very passionate about, you know, you going out of the lab and actually yeah. networking and communicating and doing all this stuff. So I feel like that you need to have some sort of a support system to get you through it. So my family and then, of course, all my lab colleagues, sometimes if I have to leave for some, you know, workshop that I'm attending, if I had to rely on them, they were there. So even the support from the community yeah, that's important, is yeah. very important. Um, and in terms of the current projects that I'm involved in, I'm doing a bunch of things. So um, in terms of creative writing and content writing, I am currently uh, partnering with a brilliant illustrator, Abrian mm -hmm. Currington. Um, uh, and we are coming up with a coursework uh, about how to tell uh, inclusive science story okay cool. uh, so previously we already did one coursework which was how to tell a science story which was like a basic module for uh, science storytelling and this is more like an oh these course of uh, a psychom program which is offered by a company called lifeology mm -hmm. um, so that is one thing that i'm working on currently i'm also um involved in um, American Society for Biochemistry and Molecular Biology's Art of Science Communication coursework. I took that course myself back in 2016. And then uh, they ask you if you would like to come back as a discussion facilitator or mentor for you know coming cohorts. So I've been teaching that course on and off for the last four years. Um, so I'm doing that again this summer. And uh, last year, uh, along with my friends, uh, we came up with uh, a new initiative or an organization uh, called iSTEM Care. And we actually uh, recently launched our own podcast series. Nice. 
similar to those. Um, our focus is a little bit different. Our um, intended audience mostly is uh, Southeast Asian undergrads and master's level students, but of course the content will be globally applicable. Uh, and we are actually uh, interviewing and having conversations with STEM professionals who have actually gone on to do uh, non-traditional career paths. And we are asking them, how did they choose that? How did their transition go? Nice. Why did they do it? And like, was there a support? And there is a lot of discussion about what kind of resources uh, one can you know, look for or can they provide to the upcoming generation of STEM professionals. Yeah. I'm Sounds very, like something very, our STEM Cognito team should listen to, huh? <laughs> oh, absolutely. We would love your feedback on that. We just dropped our first episode uh, uh, where uh, two of our hosts spoke to Dr. Harshavardhan Khare, mm -hmm. uh, who coming from a plant biology background, then he went on to do uh, a job in Citibank, completely switched positions. And now he's a postdoctoral research in artificial intelligence so very very di diverse career paths yeah he's managing it all and he's done it really well so well you should done. check out his nice. nice perfect okay yeah thank you so much for this overview it was so good so interesting to see someone doing so much so many science communication projects as well well i didn't have i didn't get time to touch on all of them but um, if you go onto my website which Thank you, Sarah, for helping me. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so you can pro provide the link for the yes, website. We will include it, yes. Uh, then people can know more about it. Yeah. Okay, so now to the end, um, we always have like five kind of random questions, not too science related, that I, we would like to just ask you quickly and from the top of your head. Okay. okay, first question. What is your, or what was your favorite subject at school? Languages. Languages. Okay. Yes. So it's, yeah, it's about talking. It's about communication. Well done. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, uh, it's, it's very funny because uh, when I graduated from high school, everybody thought that I would go into linguistics because I was a topper for uh, state level boards for uh, one of the languages. So everybody thought that I would do something in there. Uh, and I, I actually for a split second thought about it because I really loved learning languages, interacting yeah. with people. But very soon I realized that there was not many career options at that time, at least to go and becoming yeah. a linguist. Um, so the second uh, favorite subject was science. Okay. Yeah. But now, as I said, as a science communicator, so you just bring them both together and yeah. <laughs> I can. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Next question. In one sentence, what are you truly passionate about? Um, I am passionate about making connections, making connections between two abstract thoughts, abstract mm -hmm. uh, scientific concepts, uh, two people, two communities, two stories, two characters. Yep. But at the essence of it is making connections. I think I love that. Nice. I, yeah. yeah, that's good. Also really important as a science communicator. Perfect. <laughs> Okay, uh, what do you do in your free time? Um, it changes. It uh, In pre-kid world, I used to do a lot more. Now I have a kid. 
uh, most of my free time goes with uh, you know around her schedule okay but we uh, I, yeah i mean i do enjoy uh, occasional uh, paint by numbers uh, that just relaxes me i do love listening to podcasts um i love listening to music i actually love watching documentaries and period dramas okay. uh, and i try experimenting with food but not that's not really what i enjoy but i just like to do it that's that's like something that i enjoy doing with my daughter okay so, so that is actually our next question what is your favorite indian dish <laughs> what's my favorite indian dish what do you miss most from being at being away from home um i miss alfonso mangoes the most uh because in my opinion they are the best mangoes in the world okay <laughs> and every lifetimes unfortunately the the ones that i am really passionate about in united states we can but it's a lot of processing to get them here okay but in terms of dish i feel like anything that my mom and my mother in law cooks is something that i love they are both amazing cooks um and they have their own specialties so i think i i would always go back to their dishes rather than uh, i i do have some favorites of my own and i i can cook them pretty well apparently but <laughs> i think that's for other people to say not me <laughs> Okay and our last question I love that question what would you do if you were donated 10 million dollars to your project Oh ooh that's a lot of money <laughs> Yeah so when am I, think when am I getting that? Sorry <laughs> When am I getting that I can <laughs> well, start <laughs> whenever there's money in science <laughs> <laughs> Well I think um jokes aside i feel like if i were given that much money i would definitely consider it for uh, sort of putting together infrastructure where scientist and communicator uh, don't feel like two different and disparate roles yeah. i would be a scientist where i will also be a communicator and i don't have to you know explain myself uh, in these dual capacities uh i would definitely invest in a lot of resources for my group it be a science group or a communication group to have access to the resources that they want we would definitely attend a lot more conferences for sure and yeah. ex exotic one <laughs> nice so that goes into your passion actually connecting the two communities that's perfect that's right This has been so great, Manasi. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. I hope I didn't I didn't go uh too tangential, but I I love talking, so somebody's <laughs> good. <laughs> that's that's been amazing. So yes, thank you again. And we will keep in touch. Everybody should is going to visit your website because it looks beautiful. Thank you. Thank you to you. <laughs> Okay. People who don't know Sarah actually helped uh, run a workshop few months back where she coached me and many many fellow participants how to actually build a very beautiful looking and very functional website or portfolio or a blog and um, thanks to Sarah now I have a very beautiful <laughs> website. 
You and many other people, yes. It's been so good. Yeah, it was such a cool experience running that workshop with you. It was great. <laughs> awesome. Okay, thank you again then. And that's it for this week's episode of STEM to Views. Tune in again to hear more research stories from the scientists themselves. Until next time, you can follow us on Twitter at STEMcognito and on Instagram, also at STEMcognito, where you can keep up to date with our latest guests, video uploads and science communication tips and also watch the video version of this interview. See you over there.